This week on Foodstuffs. Jess heads to the coffee roastery to find out more about the bean. And all of the magic that goes into making a cup of coffee. And it's actually a cherry bean. Oh, sorry. <laughs> if you start approaching coffee in this way that you can roast it and get natural sweetness and natural creaminess and that sweet, juicy, clean thing, you don't need the sugar and the cream. And at that point, it becomes kind of an interesting drink. It's kind of that dividing line again between like, you're not tasting the impact of roasting, but you're having that window into where it's from. I'm Lee Knudela. I am the head roaster in Green Buyer at Cut Coffee. And you are listening to Foodstuffs. Welcome to Foodstuffs. A podcast about food and culture. And their intersections. I'm Jessica Walker. And I'm Brian Goman. Okay, so we're not actually in the studio together, Jess, because you're on the road. Where are you? So I'm actually speaking to you from the nation's capital today, and I'm sitting in a little room in a crazy old 19th century beautiful home. So why don't you tell everybody why you're in Ottawa now? (laughs) Um, Yeah, for some reason, this is the year that I decided to drive home for Christmas, Um, I am currently in Ottawa picking up my best friend Allison en route to Halifax. Um, So far, the snow hasn't given us too much grief, but uh, pray for us. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. So you're safe. You're sound. Everybody's good so far. Let's get on to some news, right? Let's we got some exciting news that we have a week off next week. Yeah. Okay. that's that's exciting, too. Maybe mostly for you and I. Uh, But I was thinking about something else. I think you know what I'm Mm -hmm. talking about. Do you want to tell Mm -hmm. everybody? You tell them. Okay, okay. I'll tell. So this weekend, you'll have the chance to hear Foodstuffs on Radio 1. CBC is going to air an excerpt of Jess's interview with restaurateur Grant Van Gameron, as well as a short interview with Jess this Saturday at 2 p.m. Sort of an interview, sort of like a context piece with me. Yeah, it's um, it's really exciting. So this Saturday at 2, and then again on Tuesday, next Tuesday, the 27th at 2 as well. Um, so listen up for CBC's podcast playlist featuring us. Very exciting stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, we are excited to be on, invited onto the show and really couldn't be happier to be included on the Christmas Eve episode. Woo! So if you've been listening to the podcast for a little while, you may remember an interview that I did last year with Pilot Coffee Roastery Manager, the awesome Sam Lee. On episode 16, my roommate Madeline and I talked to Sam about what it's like to be female in today's coffee industry. That's right. You guys had a talk about the current professionalization of the job and how despite coffee being a very progressive industry, that there's something happening where men are pursuing status and recognition through a lot of competitions while women are, as is the case uh, in much of the rest of society, feeling a little left out of the movement. Yeah, exactly. So our chat sort of broke my brain a little bit. Um, If you listened, you heard that happening in real time. Um, A, because I'm a relatively new coffee drinker, and so I haven't spent much time thinking about like the history of coffee or the way that the culture has changed during our lifetime. Um, but also be just how progressive the industry is and how, if any group of people could, baristas should be at the forefront of progressive attitudes. So, which in my mind would take the shape of supporting women as equals. 
that was a pretty heady chat. But ever since it's left me curious about the kind of the backbone of the industry, um, yeah, all the stuff we weren't directly talking about, but we're talking in relation to. So you may even say that it's left some ideas and questions percolating, Brian. Whoa, dad joke. A rare dad <laughs> joke from JW. I like it. Well, this is interesting to me because coffee is essentially a vice. And once you're hooked and it doesn't take very long, it's hard to break away from that daily routine and caffeine shot that you get. And yet this is still an industry that seems to want to evolve and change and challenge its uh, customers to get on board with new styles and flavors. Exactly. So that's what I wanted to find out more about. Last week, I stopped by the Sam James slash cut coffee sort of roasting zone to speak with a man by the name of Lee Canoodala, the head roaster at Cut, um, about all of that stuff we were just talking about. Okay, so let's get into it. Here's Jess speaking with Lee Canoodala from Cut Coffee here in Toronto. I got into coffee skateboarding in Regina because we used to go and drink Vietnamese coffee with, you know, the condensed milk, really sweet, really delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, or skateboarding in Regina in the wintertime was very cold, so we'd hang out in coffee shops and drink coffee to get warm up. Mm-hmm. Um, but years later, working for Sam, I started as a pal of Sam. Um, I met him through friends of friends and just got along with him really well. I was at that time really into coffee. And so when he opened up his shop, um, I started going there and he taught me a lot about, you know, what makes a really good cappuccino about espresso extraction and all that kind of stuff. I was doing a master's at the time. And by the time I was doing my PhD, um, I was close enough with Sam that was like, hey, if you ever need somebody for a couple days a week, uh, I'd love to. And he hired me and so I worked in his shops for several years and then that kind of led to me by the point when I was finishing my PhD realizing I cared a lot more about coffee than I did about trying to find a job teaching in Wisconsin (laughs) (laughs) as universities have changed and coffee kind of changed and so it was working in his shops I ended up managing one of his coffee shops the previous roaster at Cut um, had decided to go back to school and so Sam offered me the job to come and I apprentice roasted for a while And at that point, uh, the previous roaster left and I took over as head roaster. And about kind of last year sometime, Sam put me in charge of the entire green buy-in program. So now I do all of the green purchasing and the budgeting for that and working with farms and distributors and green buyers. Very cool. Um, And just to be clear, you were not studying science or any of those things before you uh, approached Sam, were you? I got a very useful degree, a PhD in cinema and media studies. (laughs) Um, Obviously applicable here. Um, So what do you think it is about coffee and roasting coffee that satisfies something in you? And here we are today. Coffee is really hard. It's really difficult. Um, I I always say that roasting is the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life because it's so complicated. And I think that's the interesting part about coffee from, you know, the roasting part, working in cafes, drinking coffee, um, all of the kind of cultures around coffee. There's so much to it that's interesting socially. There's so much interesting scientifically. And I think for me, all of those years in school are really beneficial at this point now because I can do a lot of research into farms. I can do a lot of research into the chemistry of coffee, into the science of coffee. And it really comes across in that. But the thing that keeps me here every day is that it's just so difficult. Mm-hmm. So you're chasing the beast or something? Chasing that perfect cup. Yeah. Um, have you ever had the perfect cup? 
I've had a lot of really good cups. I don't know. I feel like if I ever have that perfect cup, then I might have to find another job. So <laughs> You'll be done. Okay, so let's hope that that's not the case. Um, just out of curiosity, I don't expect a 100% concrete number here, but how many hands do you think touch the coffee before you get your hands on it? It's a... Uh, Interesting, disgusting question. Um, <laughs> no, that's part of the fascinating thing about coffee is that coffee is so diverse. So I could get coffee from a really, really small farm. Uh, the Columbia we have on offer right now, for example, um, the the owner uh, and his wife have six kids, and a lot of what he talks about in his interest in coffee is about this small family and their approach to it. And so that would be a really small, uh, small operation. So there would be not too many hands at that point. Um, it would just be the kind of growing, the processing, shipping. Um, and then at that point, I would take it out of the containers, pack it up, put it in the roaster, roast it. And then from here, we have a, a guy that takes out all of the rocks and takes out all the over-roasted and under-roasted uh, Quakers, which are kind of overripe or underripe beans. And then we have lovely Doug, who will package it up and send it to the restaurants and the cafes. And at that point, you know, the barista would take over and then land in your cup. But then there's also places, um, you know, if we're dealing with larger cooperatives in regions that have really small-scale farms. So, uh, for example, working with cooperatives in Ethiopia, it's a whole bunch of small hectare farms. And so that's a lot of hands at that point who would then produce just small hectares. Those would go into larger pools. All of that would be kind of combined and then mm -hmm. sent to the washing stations and then sent along to us. Mm -hmm. So I presume this is different than what happens when someone gets coffee from Tim Hortons or McDonald's or something along those lines? No shade? Just just curious? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of those, I would love to see the roasting facilities. Um, a lot of them are kind of secretive, and I will throw some shade that a lot of the large-scale operations like that, part of the secret element is, you know, um, an abuse of farmers. Like they're looking for cheap coffee, they're driving down coffee prices, they're looking for the cheapest labor possible. They're not necessarily looking for the best beans or the best relationship with the farmers, but simply looking for cheap commodity coffee, which like any industry that has that kind of level of exploitation is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna say a lot of hands potentially, but again, uh, when you're dealing with a place like that, they won't even identify where they're buying their coffee from. Right. So they're strictly looking for quantity, not quality. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, so in researching coffee, and if anyone had listened to my interview with Sam Lee last season, um, the idea of waves and us being in and around the third wave right now um, is part of the conversation. Do you subscribe to this perspective? Um, I, I find the wave thing a little alienating for most people. People within the industry really know what it's about, but people that may just have a slight interest in coffee, it's not very intuitive to talk about waves. Um, I'm sorry, maybe we should just define yeah. what we're talking about. Do you want to give your synopsis? So the way that I've always understood waves, and again, pretty much everyone has their own definition of waves because it's kind of an abstract conference concept. Uh, wave one is when coffee in North America kind of goes to the home. Folgers in a can arrives, uh, you know, like Nestle or Nescafe. And so people are brewing it at home. Uh, wave two starts initially with uh, the large company Pete's, um, and that's the kind of rise of the cafe. And I would put the end of the second wave in the 90s with the kind of Starbucks Java House, um, Mocha House and Java House. 
in the 90s. And the third wave, uh, which especially coffee uh, is kind of involved in, is the rise of, well, I kind of mark it with when Starbucks switched to automated machines and got rid of all of their La Marzocco lineas and the market floods with these manual, great, perfect espresso machines. Mm -hmm. And a number of people buy these espresso machines used and start cafes. And so that's the start of, you know, uh, Blue Bottle and Intelligentsia and the kind of hallmarks of third wave coffee or those kind of uh, specialty coffee who start dealing with um, better quality green, lighter roasting, medium to light roasts. And uh, at that point you start seeing latte art and everything like that. I find the whole thing kind of a bad way to describe coffee. And again, really so much of coffee culture is alienating for those who are not part of it, which is kind of a huge obstacle for it. So I just use modern coffee to describe mm-hmm. what I'm involved in. I involve, I, I work and roast modern coffee. And I'm borrowing that from Scott Rayo because when I heard that, I was like, that's perfect. There's no weird wave metaphors. <laughs> There's no kind of history about it. There's just coffee and what we're doing is modern coffee. Right. Um, so you're kind of referring to it just there, but does that terminology or even that awareness mean anything outside of the coffee world or outside of those who work in the industry? And why does this industry strive to um, define itself all of the time in these ways? That's sort of two questions, forgive me. (laughs) No problem. Um, I think part of the wave thing was to try to explain um, what it is, what, what the modern coffee shop is trying to achieve and what it's doing differently. And I think a part of it, a lot, I could do, I could be pessimistic or, uh, about a lot of this kind of stuff and say that there's kind of a bad relationship to customers where people are being like, no, you, you, you don't get this. Mm-hmm. Allow me to explain this to you, which is a terrible approach, um, to, to most things, but I could be more positive and actually be like, well, this is actually about people involved in a new type of approach to coffee and producing it in a new way, roasting in a new way, extracting and brewing it in a way. And it's about a kind of way to be like, try this without milk, try this without sugar first, and just try what the what the flavors are, because it's potentially unlike coffee you've had before. Right. Um, and when you say stuff like that, that's how I talk to people about oysters and maybe wine. Well, no one ever adds anything to wine. So <laughs> that's how I talk about oysters, um, which is again, sort of respecting where something comes from a little bit more. So that's probably part of what we're talking about here, right? No, absolutely. Um, The line I use to describe coffee is I always say there's basically two types. Uh, One, people that like dark roast, the flavor profile is the impact of the roasting process. So what you're tasting is at the point in which the roasting process has overtaken the bean and you're gonna taste the kind of caramelization of sugar Counterintuitively, uh, caramelization is not sweet. So like you're burning sugar. Mm. The longer you put sugar on a stove, the less sweet it's gonna get because you're breaking down sucrose. Um, so at that point, you're kind of tasting the, the caramelization process, but you're tasting the dark, darker, roastier flavors. Um, and that's the kind of, you're, you're interested in tasting the impact of the roast. So that's dark roast coffee. On the other side, um, what I try to do with coffee is develop it in a way that you can taste where it's from. Um, properly developed coffee, so not underdeveloped or overdeveloped, not under-roasted, over-roasted, um, is coffee that I think that you get in that, that window into what you're looking at. So it could be the same thing with an oyster on its own, right? You're getting a window into where it's from, mm-hmm. a window into the, what, like the, the kind of life cycle of an oyster, where it's from, what, 
what the water tastes like, what the time of year affects and everything like that. Absolutely. And this is also bringing up for me, like the orange juice conversation that happened like five or six years ago when that expose on Tropicana came out and basically everyone just had this aha moment where it was like, oh yeah, this is something that is growing and is probably going to be different depending on the time of year. And yet this is a product that tastes the same every time we drink it. And then the idea of flavor packs came out and does this, is this familiar to you? No, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons, um, dark roast coffee is kind of prevalent is that it's easy to do Uh, dark roast coffee. Um, not to throw shade. I mean, I'm also not a person that's like, don't drink dark roast. Democracy of taste, drink what you think tastes good. Um, but dark roast coffee is a much easier thing to do than to develop a coffee properly on on the lighter scale or like a light to medium roast. It's way more difficult, but it's easy to reproduce. So um, for a large scale production that's buying a cheaper bean that necessarily wouldn't taste that good, roasted dark, um, you can do all these kind of things like there's steaming technologies to reduce the rubbery taste of bad coffee, do all these kind of processes and then roast it dark and it will taste like that roasted caramelized process. Mm -hmm. Um, so the same thing with orange juice, like you could reproduce that over and over and over with great ease. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're taking, you know, like a micro lot from, um, El Salvador or someplace like that, and just doing uh, the kind of proper development on it and getting that window, it might be harder to reproduce, but it's a way different experience. And so I'm sure if you got, you know, a bunch of oranges from the store and freshly squeezed them, it would be much different. Mm-hmm. Exactly. A movement that's been happening in the last little while with wine is natural wine, where you are, instead of looking to provide the same thing that customers are exp- expecting each time, you're instead letting each Um, season and each crop kind of express itself and kind of trying to harness it to the best of your ability in such a way that you would want to drink it yourself I guess as a winemaker and so I I see your role as something more similar to the winemaker than let's say the farmer or or something like that um, where you are seeing what you're working with and figuring out how to make the most out of it does that sound appropriate I, I know for sure and the natural wine thing has been really interesting for me to kind of, um, I, my wine knowledge is nowhere near as good as those around me, which is fun because then people are like, try this wine, try this wine. And so um, I've been trying a bunch of natural wines from the people at Brothers uh, right. in Toronto, this great new restaurant, and they were giving all these wines. And it was really relatable to sitting at the cupping table where you taste coffees because there's so much fruit in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, well-roasted coffees or well-developed coffees will be in this kind of borderland of really great ripe and cooked fruits mm-hmm. and and really nice chocolates and really heavy sugar flavors and the natural wines that I was tasting that was like loaded with pineapple and all these flavors where it was much different than, you know, like the box wine that I grew up on. (laughs) Exactly. I think that that's my experience in reverse. When I came to a cupping with you, I was just like, I am trying to, because it's, it is familiarity. It is, um, identifying a flavor, differentiating the multitude of flavors in a single cup and realizing that, you know, kiwi and, well, on the wine side, I don't even know all my t- <laughs> flavor profiles and that are in the spectrum of coffee, but knowing that we can have leather and 
black currant and tobacco and that is beautiful not gross and <laughs> like if you were to actually put those things together in some way that would you could safely eat um, <laughs> um, but I think that that's part of the process right is just um, learning uh, what what you're tasting and why that, that that's special and kind of how to ask for more right definitely um, you'll see up on the wall here at the roaster I have a little sign that says sweet juicy clean and so those are the kind of hallmarks of a really great coffee for me um, and so the whole roasting process the main goal I try to do from the start is develop sweetness um, sweetness is a really hard thing to roast for, but I think it's the most uh, satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, the juiciness is just a coffee that uh, a lot of juiciness will just come through certain techniques of using airflow and eliminating certain acids and producing certain flavors. And the clean element of it, too, comes through specific kind of techniques of roasting. And so when you have a coffee that's sweet, juicy, and clean, you have a coffee that's through the roasting process. The cellulose has been turned to delicious sucrose, you've developed and eliminated a number of acids, which will affect those flavors, and you end up with the exact same uh, sucrose chains and chemical chains that make fruit taste like fruit. And so it's the same thing with wine. Like people are always like, "Well, taste descriptions are bullshit." And it's like, "Well, no, because it's all chemistry." Mm-hmm. <laughs> the reason a, a peach tastes like a peach is because of all the peach uh, chemicals and you know, like not artificial chemicals, but the sucrose in in peaches. And so you can develop those the same way uh, you can in coffee. You can do it the same way you can do it in wine. And that becomes really fascinating to then sit at a cupping table and just be like, oh, wow, like I actually do get a stone fruit flavor from this. Oh, wow, I do get these kind of flavors. I mean, the same thing uh, says like about, you could say about bad coffee though, like you can get hay flavors or the flavors of raw green beans. You get hay and straw and underripe fruit and peel and pith. And mm-hmm. that's less pleasurable, but it's also an interesting insight into the coffee. Yeah, you're always going to learn something. Um, and if you can divorce yourself from just looking to crush a nice, delicious coffee, then there's, um, there's a lot to be gained. In preparing for this, I find it really interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't think of too many industries where the producer side, the um, purveyor side kind of moves forward, not at the behest of the customer, but rather because of their own curiosity or in pursuit of something greater, um, and therefore requires, like puts a lot of extra work in the mix of having to teach your customer why this is better and then get them to the place of understanding and then they'll request it. And yeah, the new style will kind of proliferate why 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 does coffee do that to itself everyone knows why coffee is helpful and you get a buzz and that's enough so why is there always this pursuit with coffee to kind of up the game and keep people sort of on their toes from the customer side well i might be a bit of a jaded person to ask that because that's one of the parts of cafe culture i really loathe is uh, bad customer service and <laughs> I don't mean that that is part and parcel with that I think that is a bad byproduct of it and if you're not caring and, and gentle with people then it can be really off-putting but I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing um, but absolutely. yes continue yeah. no no absolutely <laughs> and, and again there's you know not to say that this is a hallmark of modern coffee but gone to enough cafes in my life that I've had really terrible service and it's because someone on the other side of the counter thinks that you don't understand what you're drinking. <laughs> and that level of let me explain why you're wrong to you is never a pleasurable aspect of 
of relationship to anybody, let alone in customer service. Um, I'm always, uh, I'll, I'll say democracy of taste a lot because I, people have been tasting their whole lives. <laughs> it's part of being alive is tasting and figuring out what you like and what you don't like. And so the coffee element though is drinking really bad coffee your whole life, adding cream and sugar makes it into a really great drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the bonus of the caffeine. Um, but if you start approaching coffee in this way that you can roast it and get natural sweetness and natural creaminess and that sweet, juicy, clean thing, you don't need the sugar and the cream. And at that point it becomes kind of an interesting drink. It's kind of that dividing line again between like, you're not tasting the impact of roasting, but you're having that window into where it's from. Mm -hmm. So I think that the hurdle for that is just to get people uh, aware of of that. And so when, you know, I did many years as a barista and people will be like, I want a bold coffee and just be like, okay, so when you're saying bold, do you mean like you want a coffee with a lot of flavors? Um, and what kind of coffee do you like? And even you can talk to people, it's probably the same way you can talk to them about wine, um, is just talk about what kind of flavors you like. And coffee is incredibly complicated on a chemical level, on a level of chemistry, but you can produce all these interesting flavors. And so, you know, if you like a chocolatey coffee, then it's like, well, we'll try this Colombia. Oh, if you want a fruity coffee, I want a fruit flavor. And it's like, well, we have this amazing uh, coffee from Kenya right now and try that. And so I think it's more uh, finding that middle ground with people rather than just being like, you're wrong. The other <laughs> problem is a lot of coffee in modern coffee is, and I'll throw some more shade and maybe I'm going to alienate myself from both, you know, Tim Hortons and <laughs> modern coffee, but like a lot of coffee out there is bad. Mm-hmm. And so under roasted coffee that tastes sour and pithy and like peels is as uh, kind of one dimensional in flavor as a really severely dark roast coffee. And there's people that enjoy it. And that's the part I won't throw shade at is like, if you enjoy that style of roasting, enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I don't want a coffee that tastes sour and dry. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of things that could be a bad part of coffee is if you're going to a place and you taste a sour and dry coffee, and then you have somebody explain to you why it's good is not that fun of an experience. Right. Yeah. No one likes to be made to feel that they're not with it or not smart okay. and that they don't know what they're tasting. People have been tasting their whole lives. <laughs> Um, so why then do you think that it's important for coffee to keep moving and keep progressing and, and to kind of fight this battle? That's pretty dramatic, but you know, like to, to have this conversation with uh, their customers. I think that's a really great question because it kind of gets into the aspects of coffee that have a kind of social justice imperative. And so coffee should be expensive. Like coffee should be really expensive. Um, there's a lot of places now, if you go to Australia, if you go to England, um, you know, places in Japan where coffee just costs a lot of money. And the flip side of that is because if we're approaching coffee in this way, then we can start undoing a long history of exploitation on the farmer side. And the education part, the part that's so interesting for me is that you can try all these coffees from around the world. Or you can try the same farm season after season from crop to crop, and it's going to taste differently. And there's something so enjoyable about that, which, you know, will bleed into conversations about wine, bleed into conversations about oysters. 
And so the, the aspect of that slide is then at that point we can really get into all of the elements of coffee that kind of get lost in taste notes or just roast degrees and that's the farm. Mm -hmm. um, coffee is an amazing, uh, it just starts as this amazing little cherry and then you do all of these things, you process it, you can do different aspects of processing, you can leave the, the cherry skin on, you can pulp the cherry skin and leave the mucilage on, you can fully wash it, you can ferment it for any number of days, you can dry it and all these aspects. And growing conditions wise, you know, you can do all of these different aspects that will totally come across in the cup. And I think it's that process of, at that point, if we start focusing more on where coffee's from, what the farmers are doing, how it's grown, where it's grown, the varietal that the coffee is, um, all of those aspects at that point. And then also, you know, take roasters take it upon themselves to roast for sweetness, for juiciness, for cleanness, to really give that window. Then on the customer end, I think there's totally people that are interested in that. People want to uh, taste, you know, taste origin. They want to see that window into origin. And I think it's also just a matter of then we just start paying everyone along the way more money, which is a good thing. With that in mind, um, when you came into the, the role of roaster at Cut, were you kind of told this is the style that this is our identity as a brand, um, find your place in it? Or do you find a lot of agency in, the, in um, your role here? It sounds like you think a lot about it. So I, yeah, I'm just curious. I'm, I'm extraordinarily lucky for having to, been able to kind of, through coincidence and friendship, manage to get the job that I have, a job that I love, and a job in which I work for a guy that I love. <laughs> and he lets me basically do whatever I want. Um, I've got a, I work within a budget, um, you know, based on what we can charge for retail bags, what we can charge per pound on our coffee. And I just kind of finesse in our budget on that. And then the rest of it is just the great, uh, great job of finding farms to do it. And then spending all of my days pouring over data sheets and trying to figure out the chemistry of coffee, which at this point, um, is still so unknown. And the amazing thing is the moment in which this kind of changed in which we went from uh, kind of darker roasts or traditional philosophies of roasting to the kind of modern ca style of roasting, all of the chemistry changes. Uh, everything that happens changes. And so it's still so unknown and still up in the air. And so I have a lot of freedom on that end. And Sam lets me kind of work with the farms I want to work with. And the nice thing about coffee now is there's this emergence of a new type of green seller. And I think the future of coffee is going to be for the kind of social justice imperatives is working better green brokers. And so um, I mentioned to you in a conversation a while ago, uh, there's this great place, uh, Apex in Calgary and Red Fox Merchants in California, where the people that are working there were working in the industry and decided to start their own companies that don't rip off farmers. Mm. And so rather than being like, we need to get as much coffee as we can and sell it to as many people as we can, uh, Jeff and Aleko both had this philosophy where we're like, no, we're going to work with select farms and work with them year after year and provide feedback loops and help them make coffee that, you know, that they're interested in making. Um, and then also just work with roasters who understand what we're doing on this end and what farmers are doing. And I think that's one of the ways that, you know, like in addition to creating direct trade relationships, ensuring little things that like happen at the farms that, you know, like pickers are always paid by hour rather than weight. There's little elements like that, but then it's also, I think, 
an emergence of a new model for green buying um, for all scales. So that, you know, if you're a smaller scale roaster that can't buy a shipping container worth of coffee that will die on your shelf, you can work with people like Red Fox merchants who will sell you a coffee that came from someplace good. Mm-hmm. And you said um, that they work to with the farmers to help them produce something that they want to make. I was expecting you to say help them produce something that the customer wants. But um, yeah, can you just flesh that idea out a little bit more? Um, I, I, one of my favorite people in the green buying side of the entire coffee industry is uh, 49th Parallels buyer, Laura. Um, she had this amazing conversation where she was talking about how when she approaches farms, her first conversation that he has is like, I want to work with you long term. I want to pay you double to triple what you're getting right now. And I want to work with you long term to produce this coffee. And farmers are usually like, but what's the catch? <laughs> but her flip side of that was what she was saying is that the thing that surprised her is that like, and again, the democracy of taste and the knowledge here is farmers who have been doing this for generations and whose parents are doing this know so much about coffee. And I think the wrong attitude is to go in there and just be like, well, actually, we're going to be, you know, roasting this for bergamot flavors and trying to like explain to them. And it's like, no, farmers obviously have a lot invested in so much knowledge of this. And so I think it's a matter of then uh, working with farmers on the side of processing and all that stuff. And it's interest farmers want to produce, you know, coffee that they find delicious and coffee that can be roasted that way. And so I think it's kind of a common goal rather than being like, well, actually, this is how you should be processing your coffee. And so that long-term relationship, I think, is the is the real key aspect to that rather than swooping in one year being like here's a bunch of money and then leaving the next it's a matter of kind of having this relationship and having a feedback loop um there's a couple people in the world who have this so like tim wendelbow owns the farms uh that he is roast or roast that his cafe serves Mm. and i think it's in those feedback loops where you can be like well this processing on this crop in this year worked this way to roast it this way and these this kind of side of the chemistry of roasting and then brewing and i think it's closing that feedback loop um, and working kind of in conjunction rather than anybody one of the things that like i resent in roasting is when people kind of show up and just be like well time to make this coffee and it's like well no you're dealing with a product that so much labor and so much time and so much care has gone into showcase that rather than be like I'm going to invent this coffee it's Mm -hmm. it's time for me to create (laughs) because this is a blank canvas and I'm um I'm the best or something um so it's almost like taking the former relationship was patronizing and now we're going into a partnership or or honoring something that is created. Um, and a lot of this does tie into colonization and unpacking kind of hurts of hurts of the past. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, coffee, like many, uh, food and drink things involved in, especially in vice cultures Mm -hmm. has been, it's a long history of exploitation and it continues to be, uh, it continues to be, a very exploitative relationship and I mean specialty coffee or modern coffee is still such a small market share um, and the majority of coffee out there doesn't come from uh, kind of equitable relationships um, I think this is kind of a universal story of food and I think this is something your podcast points out frequently which is great uh, is just that that level of foods involvement in exploitation but the flip side about how we can remodel and restructure these things in new ways that 
benefit everyone from the person who's going to drink a cup of really great Kenyan coffee and taste great stone fruit flavors <laughs> back to the farmers in Kenya who are growing the beans to the roasters in between and the people all, all along the chain. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've sort of touched on it, but more directly, what are you excited about in the future of coffee? What What's coming up? Um, what's on the horizon? My... Personal excitement is I started working with the University of Toronto, uh, the chemistry and the imaging science departments about the chemistry side because, so I learned to roast from Scott Rayo, who's like, hey, follow all of these kind of fundamental rules and you'll get a good cup. And so within that, after you figure out these fundamentals, you can kind of learn to do finesse the machine in certain ways, do things with airflow, uh, do things with heat, go from conductive to convective heat and all these kind of aspects along the way and produce these uh, really kind of sweet, juicy, clean cups of coffee. But the question, I can do all these things, but I I have no idea why it works. Mm -hmm. And so I approached uh, these these, uh, wonderful scientists at the U of T and I was just like, I don't get this. Why does this work? And they, they had the flip side. They're like, well, you know, there's all these kind of processes, but they, their knowledge is lacking on the roaster side. So the personal excitement for me is that but the thing that gets me every day is I mean when I talked about how I've been in coffee or interested in coffee my whole life and had it changed you know like I worked in cafes I did homework in cafes I've had conversations with all kinds of people and friends in cafes and cafe culture is still one of those great things like spending time in a cafe is fun and it can be, you know, like a place for friendship. It can be a place for romance. It can be a place for political discourse. It can be a place for political organization, all of that kind of aspect. So I think that the ongoing evolution of the cafe as a space, as a function is interesting. I think having, you know, like roasters increasingly learn more about what they're doing is interesting. I think farms continuing to innovate and continue to produce just amazing products. So like the green beans I get all the time, whenever I roast them, I'm always just amazed about how, how much is in that cup, how much can come across. And I think it's all of these things kind of functioning at the same time. New green brokers, like I was saying, all these kind of new uh, links in the chain will continue to push cafe culture uh, and modern coffee into this kind of new, uh, new form of something that's existed forever, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else that people ought to think about when they are buying coffee out in the world or at home? The thing, even though I will, you know, preach over and over democracy of taste, try drinking coffee without milk and sugar, at least have a sip before you add milk and sugar, just to see what's going on in the cup. Um, just think of the farmer and just have a little sip mm-hmm. <laughs> would be the one thing. But the other thing is, uh, enjoy what you enjoy. Like, don't go into a coffee shop and have someone give you a cup of coffee that tastes like grapefruit peel and tell you you're wrong because you don't get it. <laughs> it's like an under-roasted coffee. Someone messed up at some point. But go to a cafe and enjoy, try new things, try different origins. Uh, don't add milk and sugar on the, for the fun sip. And then feel free to, feel free to do what you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and just be, the one thing I'd say is that we all need to be willing to pay more for coffee. It's gonna, coffee is going to be facing a massive environmental crisis over the next Uh, 50 years, well, ongoing, but especially climate change is going to be huge for coffee. And I think it's one of those things where we just all need to agree that we're going to spend more on a cup of coffee. That's awesome. Um, Well, thank you so much for having me here, Lee. Um, Yeah. Cheers. Thank you for having me. And that was Jess in conversation with Lee Canudela from 
cut coffee in Toronto. Another interesting discussion about coffee. I always love hearing from people who are nerdy about something, anything. It's always mm-hmm. fun for me. Yeah. Um, but I liked that this was a guy that who seemed to be, even though he was he was really invested in it, he is really invested in it. Um, he's trying hard to not be that sort of stereotypical, pretentious uh, co- coffee roaster or barista, right? Yeah, he's trying not to leave people out of the conversation, which is something that I also do when I'm serving at the restaurant. So I very much appreciate it. Yeah, and I mean, I think that, you know, as you discussed, there is sort of damage to be undone. And you can see even him, I mean, we had talked about the concept of the third wave coffee, which I think people find interesting. But I also thought it was interesting to have someone say, like, let's make it simpler. <laughs> I prefer yeah. just calling it modern coffee. And I think that is a lot simpler. And I think it still does that movement or whatever you want to call it justice. Uh, by yeah. saying it's a, it's a it's a new thing, but I thought you know that's I think a refreshing way of looking at it and sort of like I say so trying to undo the, the some of the damage that has been done because sometimes when you go into a coffee place if you're not super educated if you are just getting into it or if you haven't had a particular kind of coffee it can be a bit of an intimidating thing so to have somebody who's really disarming like that I think is helpful. Absolutely, and it's. Is it intimidating or is it just really annoying, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's also like, I think that talking about third wave coffee was sort of an aside to the previous conversation that I had and it was hard wrapping my head around it, but it wasn't necessary in the last conversation. So um, when we were doing research for this chat, it was realizing that in fact, um, it isn't a global phenomenon that we are talking about America like North America, England, and Australia in particular, um, which is really interesting just because we don't have entrenched coffee history, like you would say, in areas that grow coffee, first and foremost. We certainly do not. Um, And then also um, Italy, uh, places where espresso would have started, for example. Um, So when you think about long entrenched traditions. It's sort of like, again, wine comparison. Old world wine has history. It has made its choices for specific reasons and they're happy with them. The new world is sort of, floundering is too strong of a word, but it's sort of finding its footing and finding its voice um, and it isn't set right now. And I would say that that's sort of the tradition of what's happening with coffee as well, where, you know, we're playing still and... And also we're young as countries, we're young in these industries, and we are trying to be thoughtful about what we're learning about globalization, what we're learning about fair trade, what we're learning about terroir and all these things that can be included. But, you know, someone in Italy isn't wrong for liking a darker roast coffee and wanting a quick shot of espresso. They can do that. Um, It was interesting after we turned off the microphone, I was also... uh, I was also talking to him about an article I had read about this Eritrean man uh, in San Francisco who had gone home, um, realized how they were making coffee, roasting it daily, freshly, um, and then serving it in the same day. 
and I was asking Lee about what is the next <laughs> wave of coffee. I was sort of putting it on, but what is the next, uh, what's next for coffee? Is this a possibility? And to him, that isn't the way that he roasts. You need to let the beans roast. Um, so the CO2 off gases or settles or something. Um, and then the flavors sort of cement, cement, but Eritrea is like old school coffee, you know, go to spot. So they're not wrong. You know, they can right. do that if, yeah. if that's what they want to roast for and that's the flavors that they like, then that's right too. Um, but yeah, we're, we're sort of finding our voice and obviously being extra nerdy about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that is where uh, you can go wrong is when you start to have the idea that this is the right way or the wrong way to do it, right? And the like, tisk tisk. oh, you use this or that, right? Um, you use, you, you put mm-hmm. sugar, you put uh, milk in your coffee. Again, I like the idea of you know, encouraging someone to step outside of what they would normally do and maybe try, maybe try, have the first sip without Mm -hmm. milk or without sugar. Because at the end of the day, I think that's also the interesting part. If you're the person who's like, I'll take a double double um, without thinking twice about it, no matter where you go for your coffee, um, you're kind of treating it as though this is a predictable product that is the same no matter what and it really divorces it from at the end of the day being a crop like what I was saying in the interview about that this embarrassing story about me as like a 12 year old going taking my carton of grapefruit juice back to the grocery store because it didn't taste right right it's like this is a crop it's not supposed to and we shouldn't expect it to be the same um, time after time but when you dark roast something with coffee it's essentially roasting away all of the personality of this particular crop year mm-hmm. uh, region terroir essentially and there's a reason that people do do that and I can see why someone would do that because again it's that predictability and I think that makes a certain amount of sense because coffee is such a routine people have it mm-hmm. every day very often and have it at the same time and you sort of expect it to be the same way and okay that's that's fine, but yeah. Uh, and if it is your coffee deli- or your caffeine delivery system, sure, you know, yeah. who cares what it tastes like if you don't like the bitterness or whatever. Although again, these are the people that are trying to leave the bitterness to the side instead finding, what does he say? Juicy, sweet, and clean uh, coffee. Then that's to, beside the point. But if you're not a coffee appreciator for the flavor of it itself, and you're just there to wake up in the morning, then by all means, do whatever you need to do to get it down the gullet. And there we have it, our last episode of 2016. I cannot believe we've already closed the book on this year. It's nuts. Holy smokes, it's gone by fast. So make sure you turn on your real-life radio this Saturday, Christmas Eve at 2 p.m. on CBC Radio 1 to hear us on Podcast Playlist. They are devoting their whole Christmas Eve special to food, our favorite thing. Um, So we could not be happier to be included. If you aren't able to listen this Saturday, they're also re-airing the show on Tuesday the 27th at uh, 2 p.m. as well. Fantastic. Very excited. I can't wait. I just love that image of... People maybe prepping some some food, listening yeah, to food stuff cookies. on their dial yeah. radio. <laughs> this is 
driving Just around. Exciting. For sure. I, on the other hand, will be alone in the bathtub, locking the door and not letting anyone watch me watch, listen to it. Thank you so much this week to Lee Canoodala for meeting up with me on his day off at the coffee roastery. Thanks to Ken Stauer and Eric Betlam of CIUT. We're not there this week, but we are thankful once again, another great year at CIUT. Um, thank you so much to Kate Evans, the producer of the podcast playlist for um, arranging all of this. Huge help. And thank you to my friend Veronica Simmons. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Foodstuffs Life. You can find us on Facebook by searching Foodstuffs. And Brian, we have a brand new website. That's right. It's very exciting. Take a look if you've been there before. That's old news. You got to check out this new hot, hot website. Very exciting. www.foodstuffs.life. Woo! Um, well, Merry Christmas to you, Brian. Merry Christmas, Jess. Big love to Simmel and Rye. And happy holidays, everyone. I uh, look forward to seeing you all in 2017. I'm Brian Goman. And I'm Jessica Walker. Thank you for listening to Foodstuffs. See you in two weeks. <laughs>